Okay, let's open up our Bibles to Acts 22. We're looking at Acts 22, verses 22 through 29. Acts 22, 22 through 29. We're working our way through the book of Acts. We're getting close to the end. We're going to stop for Advent, and then we'll get back to it and wrap up our multi-year series in the book of Acts. Today, verses 22 through 29. Now, we're coming into the middle of a story. I will give it context later, but... Just for now, Paul is in the middle of essentially speaking to a large group of his Jewish brothers and sisters, and then he's interrupted. It says, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks, flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? This man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came to him and said, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. And Paul said, "Uh, I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid because he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we ask that you would help us to understand it. We're grateful, Lord. We are thankful that you gave us your word, but we are also in need for you to teach us, to convict us, and to encourage us wherever necessary. So, Lord, we look to you today as we look at your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Redeemer's been around for since 2007, whatever that is, uh, 16 years or something like that. And, um, And over the course of the years, we've seen God do amazing things, And we've seen God's people do amazing things, and we have been called some amazing names. We've been called names. I don't know if you know this. Uh, We've been called liberal. So you're a liberal church, right? Probably because we don't make up extra rules for people to obey that aren't found in Scripture. Maybe that's what that is. I don't know. We've been called fundamentalist, maybe because we believe in heaven and hell or take the Bible seriously. Uh, Who knows? We've been called all kinds of things. We, we've been called, even politically, we've been told we're, we're, we're too political or we're not political enough. We're too conservative politically. We're too liberal. We, I've heard all of it. In fact, this, was, this really became a heightened issue for some people uh, around when COVID was big. Why do you have a mask service? What's that all about? You're just capitulating? You're, buy, you're buying into the, into the narrative? Or, why do you have an unmasked servant? Don't, don't you take this seriously? It's like, we've been called all kinds of things. And it's not surprising because American culture is not just confusing, it's very fractured, and it's worse now than it's ever been. All countries are confusing. American social, political culture today is complicated. 
And what we tend to do is we tend to gravitate towards a group that we most like. And once we find a group that we most like or that is most like us, we quickly then identify with that group and then that group is some, something that we consider to be orthodoxy. And now if you're in this group, you're on my team, we're good. If you're not in this group, if you're in another group, you're obviously on the wrong team, you're going in the wrong way and I can't fellowship with you at all. This is, you can see this happening today. We're more and more polarized in America where we deify one group and demonize the other. This is clearly God's group, and that group, clearly the devil's group. And it's not just Republican, Democrat. It's across the board on a variety of social, moral, and political issues. And Christians get confused, too. Christians get confused. Sometimes we're so excited to find a group that lines up with us in one particular area that we almost christen or baptize that group and declare that that's God's group, too. And what I want us to see in this passage is, is, a, is a principle that helps us to navigate this world that we live in, this kingdom on earth that we are a part of. So I'm going to state it a few times, but I want you to stay with me, and I'll, I'll show you how we're going to get there. The principle is this, understanding our citizenship in the kingdom of God equips us for living in the kingdom of man. There are two kingdoms. And as Christians, we wind up being citizens of both. We have a dual citizenship. And if we do not understand our citizenship in the kingdom of God, we are not equipped to live in the kingdom of man. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna look at the passage. We're gonna walk through the passage. And then we're gonna get to the point that, uh, that God really impressed upon me as, uh, as I spent time in this passage the last couple of weeks. So first, let me give you the context of this passage that we just read. Paul had come back from his missionary journey where he's preaching the gospel and planting churches and encouraging other Christians. He comes back. He comes back to Jerusalem. And when he gets back, there are people that are lying about, about him, spreading rumors about him. And uh, this led to chaos. This led to him being assaulted. And then it led to him being arrested. Get that. The one who was assaulted and innocent is the one who is arrested because the crowd had been so riled up and they're spreading these rumors. So Roman authorities grab him and arrest him. And so they take Paul and they're getting ready to take him away. And Paul says, let me just talk, if I may, let me just talk to my Jewish brothers and sisters who are all here watching. Can I just address them? in Hebrew, right, the people's language, and they led him, and he does. And so he begins to tell, tell his story, and he wants to tell the truth and set the record straight. So he tells his story, who he was, who he is, and how his story connects to Jesus Christ and the gospel. He's sharing all of this, and this is when he is interrupted. Paul is interrupted. Verse 22, up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. So what Paul was saying was so offensive to them, it drove them mad. They wanted to see his life snuffed out. So Paul gets interrupted. They didn't want to hear it. Called for his death. They heard it. They're like, okay, okay, that's, <laughs> that's enough. Let's put this guy down. Now, if you've been a Christian long enough and you've, you've wound up sharing your testimony a few times at least, you share your testimony a few times or you preach the gospel a few times, if, you're, if, you've, if you've done that, uh, then you've discovered that uh, people generally respond one in four ways to our testimony uh, or to the sharing of the gospel, right? Four general ways that, we see, that I, I've experienced this happen, and I think it always boils down to these, these four. Uh, one, people are indifferent, right? Maybe that's the most common. They're indifferent. They're polite. 
but they ain't, and they ain't mad, but they're not really down, right? So they're indifferent, not interested. They'll listen to you for a while. And then after a while, it's like, I got to go, bro. Like, it's like, it's enough Jesus talk. I just want to kind of, I'm just, this is a Wendy's. You know, I'm just trying to order. And you're like, you're bothering me. So let me just do my thing. But they're not mad. Uh, they're not invested. They don't care. They are indifferent. That's probably, I find a lot of that when I share the gospel with people. Other people, they're not indifferent. They're actually interested. This doesn't mean that they're convicted. This doesn't mean that they're believing and they're receiving, but they are interested. They're curious. They, maybe they like something that you have had to say. You know, when I'm talking to people about the Lord and testifying, oftentimes I'm, when it's, we're having a general conversation about something about in their life or in my life, and I'll, I'll relate something that God has said in his word, something that God has taught me in, in general, and that oftentimes piques their interest, and they become interested, Become curious. Like, oh, what, what do you mean by that? Like, what do you mean you focus on how God is good in your life even when the days are dark? What do you, what do you mean by that? So sometimes they're indifferent. Sometimes they are interested. Um, other times they are convicted. This is when they hear the gospel or they hear your testimony and they feel what we used to say back in the day. They feel a pang in their heart. Right? Their heart is pricked, is how they used to say it a long time ago. Like they, they feel a, a, an internal conviction about the, the weight and the reality of this truth that you have shared that, that they need to experience it themselves. There's almost a, not a, a, the beginning of a, of a desire for that truth to be experienced, to be understood, to be grasped. And so conviction is sometimes a, a response to when we're sharing the gospel or our testimony because they feel, they feel the reality and the weight of it. And that's, boy, that's, that's sweet. When that happens, that happens less often, much less often uh, in my experience when I'm sharing the gospel with people. But then there is uh, the opposite end of that spectrum, right? Some people experience conviction. Other people experience frustration. They get agitated and they're angry and they, they really get stirred up. And though there's a whole host of psychological and spiritual reasons why some people will respond to the gospel being preached plainly and simply with such anger and resistance. We don't have time to get into all those reasons, but that is another response. And that's what's happening here. They are angry. They are upset. They are, re they are reacting viscerally to this and they want to shut Paul down. It's always one of those four responses when we share our gospel or our testimony. So this is what Paul is experiencing, right? He's shared it. They want to shut him down. They're still calling for him to be killed. And so he's not just interrupted. Now he's going to be interrogated. Look at verses 23 and 24. It says, as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined. Oh, okay. By flogging. What? <laughs> like that's... That's not, like, that's not cool. Like, I mean, examination, I can understand. I can wrap my brain around that. We're going to examine this person. But flogging is a kind of torture, to put it mildly. And, um, and if you've studied torture or read up on torture, or if you've been tortured, you might know uh, that um, you get mixed results with torture. <laughs> it doesn't always produce the truth uh, when you're examining somebody. It can, but uh, not, not always. It's not very reliable, I don't, I don't think. But... It's, it's one thing to say we want to get to the bottom of this. We're going to bring you in. We're going to talk to you, shine the light in your face, sweat you a little bit. There's a difference between that and then flogging. The examination is to be expected. They don't know what's going on. The Roman authorities don't know what's going on, but all the Jews are loud, and they're yelling, and they're, they're, they're calling for this guy to be killed. They've got to figure it out, so they, they're going to bring him in. And if you don't know what flogging is, flogging in Roman culture was reserved for non-Roman criminals. Okay, uh, 
And it's, if you've ever heard of the cat o' nine tails, it's like that. It's a, it's a whip with long leather straps. At the end of those straps are sharp pieces of bone, glass, or metal. And so it's not just a leather whip with a knot on the end that cuts you when you are whipped. Uh, this, these pieces of bone and metal and glass would tear flesh and meat from your body. It is a literal horror movie. This was, this was such a severe wound after wound after wound that it was common for people to die after a good flogging. So this is what the Roman authorities are thinking they're going to do. Like, we're going to, get, we're going to get this guy, Paul, whatever his name is. We're going to bring him in, and we're going to strap him down, and then we're going to flog him and get to the bottom of this. Now, um, Paul has already experienced this in his past. Paul has experienced flogging and beating and persecution in the past. Um, he knows that his life is truly in danger here. He has survived it in the past. It's very likely that he would die if it happened again. Uh, but here he is looking down the barrel of what could turn out to be a, a kind of execution. And Paul is rescued by simply stating a fact. He really raises a question with an implied statement there. Um, Paul appeals to his Roman citizenship. Look at verses uh, 29 or 25 and following. Uh, when they had stretched him out for whips, by the way, that, that phrase is to me one of the most stressful phrases in the book of Acts. They stretch him out. They, they, they literally stretch him out for the whips. He's laid down and stretched out so that he is prepared for his flesh to be stripped away from his body. That is absolutely terrifying. As he's laying there, Paul said to the centurion, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? This is a rhetorical question because Paul and the centurion already know the answer to it. Right? Paul is saying, you know what you're doing here is highly illegal and you're about to be in big trouble for uh, binding and then flogging a innocent Roman citizen. So Paul appeals to his citizenship. Um, and so the, the centurion says, like, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, he was not aware. Uh, he gets the tribune over, and he says, what are you doing? You, this guy's a Roman citizen. We're all going to be in trouble because Roman citizens were afforded particular rights and privileges that non-Roman citizens did not enjoy. And one of them just so happened to be no flogging. No flogging for us. Great. That's, that'd be one of my first ones I'd want to act. I'm like, how about no flogging for everybody, but especially me? I don't want to, be, I don't want to experience that. So there was a, there was a no flogging policy, and, uh, and if you were to break this, if you were to mistreat Roman citizens and, and violate their rights, there were severe and heavy consequences. This is why people, you know, this is why the tribune and everybody was like, whoa, 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 whoa. We were all getting ready to do this. Let's get away. We got to get out of this situation. Paul appeals to his citizenship here. Doesn't always do that, though. You go back to Acts 16, when he's beaten with rods, he could have done the same thing there. He could have appealed to his citizenship and said, yo, I don't know what you think you're doing, but I'm kind of important. I am a Roman citizen. He doesn't do that there. And it doesn't say why. But I would imagine that in the mind of Paul, there are times when he wants to assert his rights and, and be rescued from it, and other times when he feels like it's better for me to go through this. Don't know. But here, he's exercising those rights. He understands that he is both a Jew, right, by birth, by, by heritage, but he is also a Roman citizen by birth because he was born in Tarsus. 
It's interesting too to, to see, to see the, the tribune argue with him. He's like, listen, you know how much money it costs to be a citizen? I paid a lot of money for this. And Paul's like, I was born here, bro. Like, <laughs> I was born in, at Rome and said, I didn't have to buy it. Like, this, was, this, is, this is a part of my life. I was born in Tarsus, but I was raised in Jerusalem. So dual status. And they back off. And when I was reading this, it, it, it was driving me to think what I think a lot of you probably think about, which is, we all, as Christians, have a dual citizenship, which is even more dramatic than Paul's dual citizenship here that we're talking about. Because there are two kingdoms. There are, there are two cities, right? St. Augustine wrote a famous book on this, the city of God and the city of man. There are two cities that we all belong to. We are all spiritually members of the kingdom of God, but we are also citizens or members of the kingdom of man in whatever country, city we exist in. And so what I want us to do is I, as I want us to understand those two kingdoms, get some clarity on it, but I really want us to think about some implications for us because understanding our citizenship in the kingdom of God is the thing that equips us to live in the kingdom of man. The reason I believe so many of us get off track when it comes to social, moral, political ideologies and identifications is because we do not properly understand what it means to be a citizen in the kingdom of God. So this will be brief. Let's just uh, let's walk through it together. First of all, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not just a New Testament idea. It had been teased and promised throughout the Old Testament, perhaps most explicitly, when God is making covenant uh, promises to David, King David. And he says in 1 Samuel 7 and, and, and 12, uh, he says, listen, um, I'm going to establish your throne, but then from you is going to come another king, and that king will reign on the throne forever, not for a thousand years, not for a hundred years, not for a lifetime. He, he is going to reign on the throne forever. So the, the king of Israel like, is, sort of, is a type pointing to this other king who would come who would then reign forever. Justice, peace, shalom, the Jews called it, right? Forever. And it was, it was promoted, it was promised, and then we, we see it unfolding. And the kingdom is finally established, this spiritual kingdom is finally established with the birth life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, the very first thing that Jesus says in Mark 1.15 when his ministry begins is, repent and believe the gospel because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? The kingdom is at hand. So now the kingdom is arriving. It is here. And Jesus is opening up the gates and saying, admittance is open, right? I want everyone to come into the kingdom, to enter into the kingdom, for admission, all it costs is faith. You have to believe in me, Jesus says. So Jesus establishes this kingdom. In fact, Jesus talks about it quite a bit. In fact, most New Testament scholars, most gospel scholars will tell you that the emphasis of the gospels, is especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, let's say like the, really the emphasis or the thing that runs through it is the kingdom of God. That's the thing that's constantly running through all of them. It's, it. It ties all of them together. So... Jesus talks about it quite a bit. Let me give you one passage, uh, John 18, verse 36. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not 
from this world. I love this passage. I love this passage because of what it says, right? Um, it, it, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty clear, right? Jesus says, listen, there is a kingdom that, that is mine. I am the king of this kingdom. And this kingdom is not of this world. It is different. It operates differently than this world. And one of the ways you know, know that it's not of this world is because if it was, uh, we would be fighting. Your teeth would be knocked out. Like, my people would shut you down, okay? Well, we would not take the abuse and the persecution. That's how you know, because we're not waging war as the world does. We have a spiritual war to wage. So Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. It is a spiritual kingdom. It is not here to establish a political reign. It's not what Jesus was doing. But he is establishing a kingdom. And in establishing a kingdom, that not only means that there is a king, but there are also subjects or citizens of the kingdom. And we are all made citizens of this kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So, so, so get what Paul is saying. Listen, you used to be strangers to the promises of God, to the covenants of God, to the people of God. You're not born into this family. You are strangers. You were exiles, but through Jesus, you are engrafted in. You are adopted in to the family. You are made citizens of this kingdom. You truly belong because of Jesus, but you have to enter in, and we enter in by faith. Or Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. So the kingdom has come, right? Jesus says that. Jesus says, if I cast out the Holy Spirit, or if I cast out, he's not casting out the Holy Spirit. If I start teaching that, please let some, please alert all religious authorities in the Baptist world. Jesus is not casting out the Holy Spirit. He sends the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit proceeds from Christ. He says, if I cast out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit, the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus is really clear about this. But then when he teaches us to pray, what does he say? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. So the sense is that the kingdom is here, but we're still waiting for it to arrive. It's already present, but it's not yet fully here. We yearn for the time when the reign of Christ, like the kingdom of God, is the reign of Christ as king over creation and his people. Right now, we experience it through his, his redemptive reign in our lives and our hearts, but we're waiting for that redemptive reign to encompass all of creation so that there's no more death, no more sin, no more fear, no more suffering. So we wait for his kingdom to come, even as we enjoy it now in part. What this means is, right, that there is a kingdom of God that we are spiritually a part of through faith in Christ. It means that we derive a true sense of identity from that kingdom. There is a king who is reigning, who has given us laws and made us a part of that community, right? There's a community, there's citizens, there's laws, there's a king, there's a reign. Like, that's home for us. That's home. And we, we need to keep this in mind because we, we get confused. It's easy for us to get confused as we live in the kingdom of man. So the kingdom of God, we see it in Scripture. We see it throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. 
Now, what's easier for us to grasp is that there is clearly a kingdom of earth, a kingdom of humanity, kingdom of man, city of man, that we all do wind up belonging in, in one way or another. So when you're talking about the kingdom of man, you could just think, think country and culture. Country and culture. This might be the easy way to think about it. Country and culture, right. That's where you live. It's a place that's got traditions and beliefs and values that are associated with a particular people group that are located in a particular area, country and culture. Or you can think about land and laws, right? You can think, oh, there's a geographical region. There's a, there's a certain governing authority, and it says that these things are illegal and these things are permissible. Or you can think cities and civilians, right? You can think about this in a bunch of different ways. But most simply, it is a, a gathering of people in a particular area that are governed by certain beliefs, ideologies, laws, traditions, values. And we live in those regions. We live in the city of man, even though we are members of the city of God, the kingdom of God. And this creates sometimes complex issues that we have to wrestle with. In fact, this comes up in the ministry of Jesus in Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22. It says that the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinions for you are not swayed by appearances. Flattery, they don't mean any of it. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or no? No big deal. No, no, just, just, what do you think? It, it, they think this is a trick question, right? Because if you're saying, well, pay taxes to Caesar, then you're essentially saying, let take the money that God has given his own Jewish people and give it to the pagan occupying forces that are, are oppressing God's people. So you are against God's people and their freedom if you're paying taxes to Caesar. That would be one end of the argument. Of course, uh, you run into trouble if you're saying don't pay taxes to Caesar because then you're saying uh, let's take up arms and revolt, right? Basically, let's start a war. Let's pick a fight with these governing authorities. And, and Jesus has a response. I mean, he understands what's happening. And Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled. And they left him and they went away. Look, in part what Jesus is communicating here is that, yeah, we are members of the kingdom of God. We are members of the family of God, but we do live in the world, and we have to live thoughtfully, intentionally, clearly, and with conviction. Right? We ha there, there has to be a sense in which we are good community members in the city of man. And you know that we get confused on this. right? We know that there are differences of opinion politically and ideologically. I have friends that are, that are diehard believers. Like All taxation is theft. They really believed it. I think they would fight over it more. But, uh, but they're like, all taxation is theft, and there's no sense in which that's okay. And whether or not, like, you, ideologically you like it, Jesus says, uh, pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. Give to God what is God's,
but give to man what is man's. And so what he's saying here is that you have to live intentionally and thoughtfully in the world as a member of the kingdom of God, as well as a member or citizen of the kingdom of man. And that means we're going to have to think. It means we're going to have to work our way through this life. It's not always going to be as cut and dry as we would ideally prefer. That's why in Romans 13, 1, Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. This is coming from a guy who is persecuted by governing authorities. He's not saying all manifestations of government are good or righteous, and he's not saying that you absolutely obey all governing uh, authorities' directives without thought, but he is saying the principle is Submit yourself to the governing authorities when you can. So who really cares about all that? Like why, why spend time here? It's because when we don't understand our relationship to the kingdom of God and to the kingdom of man, we, we don't do well. Christians get into trouble. And we've gotten into trouble historically in the past by distancing ourselves too much from the culture and from social and moral and political issues, or by enforcing so much of, of our perspective and our unique perspectives oftentimes on the culture that we want to establish a Christian state, which by the way, historically has never gone good for us. It's never gone well. It always goes bad, a proper Christian state, because it winds up being usually bad for Baptists in particular, by the way. We've been drowned to death for our views. Y'all become Presbyterians super fast back in the day. I would be like, yeah, okay, I'm not going to fight over baptism. I'm crying out loud. I'll die for Jesus. Baptism, uh, you know, I might talk about it. I don't want to die about it. That's just a little much. I don't know. So here, I just want to give you four quick encouragements. Four quick encouragements that I think will help us understand our citizenship in the kingdom of God, and that will then equip us to live in the kingdom of man. So the first uh, encouragement is this. Just know who you are and know where you live. So two different things. To know who you are means you know your identity. You know what actually defines you. Not your political affiliation. Those are cool. I have them. Not your subcultural influences, interests, passions, or hobbies. What actually defines you? Not your work, not your vocation. What defines you? Who are you? And then where do you live? So to know who you are means you, you, you know that it is God, the Father, who defines you as creator, and Jesus Christ, the Son, who defines you as your Savior, and you are now a saint. It is the Holy Spirit that defines you by putting his seal upon you. You are defined by the God who made you and saves you and is refashioning you to look like a restored human being. You are who you are by the purpose and mercy of God. That defines you. Now, to understand your identity, to understand who you are, means that you have to study and exegete Scripture. Right? You, we have to take this seriously because this is how we come to understand who we really are. How do we understand anything about the kingdom of God but by this book? We need the book. 
And we talk a lot about exegeting scripture, right? If you don't know that word, it means to, it means to, to study and to bring the understanding out of a passage in order to present it to somebody else. You want to exegete a passage. And so Christians talk a lot about exegeting the scripture, exegeting the scripture. But if you are going to live in the city of man, while you must exegete scripture, city of God, you must also learn to exegete culture. City of man. You have to understand the city in which you live. Yes, you are members, primarily members of this beautiful, glorious, spiritual kingdom, but you live here. So you have to exegete the culture. You have to understand it. You have to be able to pull it apart, put it back together in order to better understand it so that you can better walk through it, avoiding the dangers, receiving the good, rejecting the bad. The way that I think about it is like this. The kingdom of God is about how I live, and the kingdom of man is simply where I live, right? The kingdom of man does not define me, which is why I hold all affiliations and interests much more loosely than I do the truths of the kingdom. So number one, know who you are and where you live. Be able to make that distinction. Number two, live for God's glory as you live in man's city. Right, So, yes, we're going to live in the city created by men and women that has unique cultures and laws and all kinds of things. And, yes, we should obey laws. Paul tells us to. We should obey the laws of the land when they are not in conflict with God's laws, when they are not in conflict with the life that God has called us to live. So, yes, we obey all the laws, but we obey God's laws first. Right? We render to God what is God's and then to man what is man's. And to do this means that you have to actually embrace an alien status. Like, we are aliens and strangers here in the world. You can love America. I love America. I look at America and I go, wow, I wouldn't want to be in any other country. I like this one the best. Doesn't mean it's perfect. It's got a lot of problems. In fact, it's my kingdom citizenship that helps me to properly identify all that's wrong and broken with American culture. And there's a lot. A lot. But it also helps me to see what's good about it. I like it. But as I live here, and though I was born here, my real home is a spiritual one, and so I need to embrace an alien status. In fact, the people of God have been referred to as strangers and aliens, even in the Old Testament. In Hebrews, it talks about this, how the saints of old were waiting for the fulfillment of the promises of God, and they didn't see them come to, to its full fulfillment yet, so they lived as strangers and exiles. And, and now today, right, the Christians today, we are strangers, we are exiles. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, it says this, Beloved, I urged you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Right, so listen, you are not like the people of earth. You're different. You're set apart. You're sanctified. You are set apart and marked by God. So don't live like the world. Don't obey the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that he's referring to outsiders here, non-believers. Keep your conduct among the non-believers honorable so that when they do speak against you as evildoers, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We are the weirdos, and we're supposed to be the weirdos, not by being culturally obtuse or annoying, but by being distinct in holiness and faith. We should be regular culturally, 
We should be rather normal. We should be able to blend in wherever appropriate, but stand out and be distinct spiritually, morally, in terms of our faith, the God that we ultimately bow down to and make known. Know who you are and where you live. Live for God's glory as you live in man's city. You put God's word first and we're willing to take the hits when necessary for being so strange. Number three, speak God's truth to the world's lies. This is important, but it can get confusing. The church has a prophetic voice. The church has a prophetic voice, right? Church has it, we're supposed to speak the truth, yep. So when the world is speaking lies, we are supposed to bring the truth. Why? Because we care about the truth. Why? Because we care about God and people who are deceived by lies. So we tell the truth on moral, spiritual, political issues. We will speak the truth. But to say that the church has a prophetic voice is not to say that the church has a political voice. Because the prophetic voice of the church is far bigger than any political voice. It doesn't mean that we don't touch on or address issues that are political in some way. It means that we function as prophets, prophets in the world speaking truth that comes from the very word of God. So yeah, we should be addressed. We don't get to just pick a position of neutrality and silence. We have to say things. So no, we're not a political organization. And we're not going to address political candidates and tell people how to vote, uh, which candidates to pick. But we are going to encourage people to allow scripture to govern their perspective and their approach. And yes, sometimes we have to tell people that there are things that are being done that are evil and wicked and we should be against them. And we should vote against them. And this culminates though, this ultimately culminates in the preaching of the gospel. And this is sort of how you know when, when we're, we're getting out of balance because there are some that start with a prophetic voice, but it really just becomes a political voice because we find groups and issues that are so close to our hearts that we become so much about that thing that we, the, the prophetic voice loses the gospel in the process and we wind up simply talking about moral issues and choices. But the church does not just talk about moral issues and choices. The church addresses those things, but ultimately where we are going is the gospel. This is the ultimate truth that we speak against the world's lies. We preach the gospel. We preach it to all creation, Jesus commands us in Mark 16, 15. So our dual citizenship means you should know who you are and where you live. You should live for God's glory as you live in man's city. Number three, we should speak God's truth to the world's lies. And number four, for me, is most important here, or at least it, it's the thing that really prevents a lot of errors that I have made in my own life and that I see made in other people's lives who are trying to navigate living in these two realities. And the principle is this, a true love for God will produce love for others. Love for God will produce love for others. And when I say others, I mean all others. There are no others that are off the list. Because I know we like to be like, oh man, love one another, boom, boom, fist bump, talk about my people, my pros, church members, woohoo, love each other. That's easy for most of you. 
It's easy. Then it's like love others. We like to love others, sure, others, certain others, some others, but there's always people we leave off of the others because they're just too wrong. They're too twisted. Can't love them. They're too corrupt. They're doing too much damage. They've gone too far. They hate me. They hate our ideologies. I can't extend love to them. And the reason you can't extend love to some is because you do not properly love God. That's the only reason. When I withhold love from somebody who does not deserve my love, that is not just a weakness that I have. It is because there is a deficiency in my love for God. I can't extend love to people, compassion to people. They're deceiving our children. They're corrupting the culture. They're destroying things that are important and valuable. Yes, I know. And Jesus tells us to love our enemies, not just our friends. To love our neighbors is not just to love people that are like us, but to love people that are completely different from us. And you know who drove this home for me more than any other theologian? The the, the theologian that drove this home for me more than any other theologian is John Calvin. Now, if you... If you've heard the name John Calvin, if you're familiar with it, you you, you may have an impression because most people, even most fanboys of John Calvin, like to think of him as an austere, tough, stoic kind of a guy. And maybe that's in part based on those scary sketches they have of him because he just looks like a zombie. His cheeks are sunken in, his eyes are sunken in. He looks very unhappy. He looks very hard, like a hard schoolmaster that just wants to smack kids with rulers the worst job. The point is, is people look at Calvin and they get this idea of him being austere. And then we have these stories that are mistold about him. Like, oh, he was obviously a cold hearted dude. And then we have, we understand, we hear parts of his theology. We're like, oh, he was such a hard guy. And people get the impression that he, he would not be the kind of, kind of guy that loves everybody. He'd be selective. Calvin is the one that impressed upon me the reason we're supposed to love all others is because we love God. Here's what he said in his institutes. I'll say this. We ought to embrace the whole human race without exception in a single feeling of love. Well, isn't that soft, liberal, mansy, pansy, kind of wimpy? What is this? This seems super soft. Calvin said that we ought to embrace the whole human race. It's a rhyming, without exception, and a single feeling of love. It sounds like a Coke commercial. Isn't this a little saccharine? Okay, let me read the whole quote. We ought to embrace the whole human race without exception in a single feeling of love. Here there is no distinction between barbarian and Greek, worthy and unworthy, friend and enemy since all should be contemplated in God and not in themselves. When we turn aside from such contemplation, it is no wonder we become entangled in many errors. Therefore, if we rightly direct our love, we must first turn our eyes not to man, the sight of whom would more often engender hate than love, but to God who bids us extend to all men the love we bear to him that this may be an unchanging principle wherever, whatever, whatever the character of the man, we must yet love him because we love God. That's Calvin, who is simply restating Jesus. 
If you just look at people and, and, and decide if you're going to extend them love based on what they think and how they behave, that's going to be a pretty small list of people to love. There are going to be people that we put in the, 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 the blackout box. Like they're, they're never to be loved. And Calvin says, no, 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 no. You have to consider all people, the worst of people. You have to consider them in God, people that have been made by God. The reason we should love those people that belong to the city of man and not the city of God is because even though they do not belong to his redemptive reign, they still do belong to him. We should love what God has made. We should love what God loves. We should love whatever reflects God and even, boy, even the worst of people still, in part, reflect the nature, the existence of God, and we should love them for that. That principle is what helps curb us against just wanting to silence or stomp or shut down or exclude or, or hate all kinds of people because love governs us. We still correct. We still speak. We're still prophetic. We still call out lies. We still hold out the gospel, but we do so from a place of compassion, concern, love, yearning for their redemption. So that's it. I just saw Paul's dual citizenship, and he's kind of interacting with these two worlds, and it made me think a lot about how we exist in these two worlds. We're members of a beautiful kingdom that nobody can see or enter into physically, but all are welcome to enter into and fully experience through faith in Christ, where our sins are forgiven, where we are cleansed, where we are justified and reconciled to God, and the human nature is restored in us, and we are becoming who we're supposed to be. It's a kingdom in which everyone is admitted we all come in the same as sinners, and we all remain the same as saints. That's why Paul says, in that kingdom, there's no Jew or Greek. There's no male or female. There's no slave or free. We're all the same. We're one. And this, this is offered to the whole world if they will humble themselves and believe. So simple exhortation here is, some of us need to reorient ourselves because while we are members of the kingdom of heaven, we aren't really living like it. Sometimes we're living like we're just members of the kingdom of man. We've found some close approximations to kingdom values, and we've settled for those. Some of us need to adjust, meaning repent, and really align ourselves with the reign and rule of Jesus. But then there are others who are living completely outside of the kingdom of God, they are only living by and they only know the kingdom of man and the kingdom of man only brings, it only offers, it promises death. And Jesus offers you entrance into this kingdom. So the encouragement for us all is that we would turn again and look to Jesus to be captivated by his grace, his holiness, his mercy and his love and trust that his sacrifice for us and his resurrection for us not only saves us from sin and death and hell, but it actually equips us to live life in a world that is broken. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we trust that you will uh, instruct us wherever we need it here, that you would convict or encourage and unite us. Lord, we, we want to be faithful to you. We want to reflect your glory. But we, have a, we live in a hard place, Lord, as developed and comfortable as America is. It's hard spiritually, morally, socially. So give us the grace that we might live here well 
representing Jesus and the gospel and holding out hope for the lost. In Christ's name we pray, amen.